0: About another hour. Why does man does not live by bread alone? Come tonight. Since you all reading bread. All right. If you've uh, got that outline and they're laying around, I think was probably help you follow along. I'm not even referring to it, but you got your you got that outline, Owen. Oh, Does everybody have, or Jim's got some? If you didn't get one of these, let us know and we'll, Jim will make sure you get one. Just hold your hand up if you didn't get one. Everybody got one? Okay. So if you, if you open it up to the inside pages under structure, uh, you can see where the outline reflects where I knew I'd be spending uh, more of my time. So you have the opening verses one and two. Then the doxology, verses three through twelve, we covered all that pretty well. And then the body of the letter begins in one thirteen. And uh, we're almost finishing this first section of the body, the call to be God's chosen people in the world. Live godly lives. And you see where we are now? And there are the five commands that we just covered, uh, from one thirteen through chapter two, verse three. Now, a brief section here about uh, what does it mean to be the people of God, and then we'll get into the second section of the box. Uh, so let's look at uh, 2 and pick it up at verse 4 and go uh, to, the end, uh, to verse 10. So he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So here I think he's back to, again, helping them understand who they are. It's identity, again. They are chosen. They are immigrants. They're living in a land that's not their home. Uh, their, Their citizenship is in heaven. And now, who are they? Well, Christ is the living stone. And upon him... God is building this structure of redemption. But who are we? Well, if He is the living stone, we are living stones. And God is also using us to build up this spiritual household. So He is the living stone. We might even say the chief cornerstone. Uh, As you can see in verse 6, He says, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone inside, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28:16. Then he says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is the living stone, and we are living stones, and he is using us to build up his spiritual household. Jesus is also the rejected stone. And so are we rejected stones. Um, That's the point of this letter. The audience that he's writing to, they are being rejected by their culture, by the people around them, because of their faith, because of their identification with Christ. They are experiencing rejection, alienation, hostility. Well, in that sense, we are like Christ. We are like him in that we are living stones that God is building a spiritual household out of because he is the living stone. We're, we might be rejected people, but he also was rejected. And so he, he draws this nice parallel. And then in verse 9, you are a chosen people. He's back down to this idea of the elect, the chosen. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light." Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you are a chosen people. And the language he uses here, I don't think he's thinking in terms of individual Christians. I think here he's thinking about the church. The church as a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as God's special possession. And what does it require? As we are God's holy people. Well, that we proclaim the glories of Him who call us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We are His holy people, so we should declare the praises of Him. This is who we are. Now that that brings us to the end of uh, at the end of something, and that's good you're out of that line. So the first part of the body is the call to be God's chosen people in the world, one thirteen through two ten. Now we get into the section, the conduct of God's chosen people, and that runs from 2.11 to 4.11. <clears throat> so let's pick it up at 2.11. <clears throat> he says, dear friends, I urge you as immigrants and refugees. There's that language again. Now, look at your translation. If you can do that while you're eating. Uh, it'll say something like foreigners, exiles, temporary residents, sojourners, something like that. And some of those are really fine English words. I'm just not sure they carry the same meaning in English today that these Greek words carry when Peter used them. I think immigrant and refugee is, is the best term to use. I think he's talking about people who have been displaced from their homeland. People whose citizenship is not in the land in which they live. It's somewhere else. And now they're living in a land that is not their home. That's an immigrant. That's a refugee in in our own language. And uh, what better time to have this highlighted for us? Can you think of a time in at least my lifetime, I can't think of a time, where there was more discussion about immigration and people who have refugee status? That discussion is going on in this country. What a perfect time to remind ourselves of who we are. We are immigrants and refugees in a spiritual way, to speak. And uh, I think that there's much to learn from people who are immigrants and refugees in the world. They model in a more literal way who we are spiritually. And so I urge you as immigrants and refugees to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation, on the day of his appearing. Okay, here's the, the way the thought begins to run. You are immigrants and refugees. As a result of that, people are going to slander you. They are going to say all manner of evil against you. They are going to be distrustful of you. They will likely alienate you, treat you with hostility. That's what often happens to immigrants and refugees. And there's some of this that is going on in our country right now. There there is a tone to our national discussion that immigrants and refugees are dangerous people and they are to be beaten. And that's an easy sell because we are naturally distrustful of people who are different from us. Now, this ought to resonate with us. That's how these Christians were being treated. They were being slandered. They were saying things about them like they're dangerous people. You need to be cautious about them. You need to be wary of them. And so what's Peter's response to that? You must live now, as immigrants and refugees, you must live in a way that is absolutely above board. You must abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. You must demonstrate by your lives that the slanderous things they're saying about you are not true. Do you know how long you have to live a certain type of life? To build up credibility? Do people just automatically think your Christianity is genuine? Do people just give you the benefit of the doubt uh, that you're a solid character person that should be trusted? You have to build that. You have to demonstrate to people, for to many people, that your Christianity is genuine. And that you're not just using it for your own benefit in some way. How many times do you have to fail before it completely destroys the credibility you built up? Like once. One bad act when you give in to your fleshly lusts can destroy a long period of ethical, moral living. So here's what he's saying. People are distrustful of you because you're going to with Christ. They will slander you they will alienate you. They might even be hostile. They will say bad things about you. So live in such a way that you prove their slander to be false. Now he's trying to help people know how to live this period of their immigration. Now I've told you this morning. I don't think we've lived in a culture like that where we've had to, where, where people have said slanderous things about us because we're Christians. But our culture is changing in the United States. What if you're a Christian in some other part of the world? You've known what it is. If you've been a Christian in almost any other country in the world for 2,000 years, you know what it is to be alienated, to be treated with hostility, maybe to be persecuted, maybe to lose your land, your family, maybe your life. But we've not known that experience in the United States. But as i tried to express this morning, I think our culture is changing. And there will be more and more of this kind of hostility towards convictional, biblical Christianity. If you stand for the things that Christianity has historically uh, stood for, then you are going to be made to look like uh, a dangerous person who's harmful to others, who hates people. And slanderous things will be said about you. So what should we do? We should live lives that put a lie to the slander. And that's what he's calling them to do. So what does that look like in everyday life? Well, he starts in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So if you're looking on the outline, let your good conduct do the talking. As immigrants and refugees abstain from flesh and lust. Now, the life of submission. What does this life look like that he's calling us to in everyday kinds of situations? How about in the Christian's relationship to the government? What is the Christian's responsibility to the government? Now think about it. Are we citizens of the United States? I am. I've got a passport to prove it. Yes. Is that my primary citizenship? No. What's my primary citizenship? It's in heaven. My commitment to my God is greater than my commitment to my government. I am not an American who happens to be Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be American. So do I have any responsibility to my uh, government, to my earthly citizenship? Yes. Yes. And why is that? Because God tells me I do. Now look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Once again, he's back to that. We should submit to the government because... Uh, people will slander you and say you're against the government. You're trying to undermine the government. You're trying to overthrow uh, your government. Submit to every human authority. Verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as gods, as slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. There's that admonition again. Honor the emperor. Okay. So we do have a responsibility to the government. If you want to see more on this, read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, where Paul says governments are ordained by God uh, for the keeping of uh, order and for maintaining justice. So we have an obligation to submit to the government, right? Even though my primary citizenship is in heaven, I do have a responsibility to submit to my earthly government. Wherever my citizenship might be. Does that mean that I am to submit to my government regardless? Do I owe absolute obedience to the nation to which I am a citizen? Absolutely. Absolutely not. Here's what government is ordained to do. Here's why God establishes government one, to maintain order, and two, to secure justice. Now, securing justice means punishing the evildoers and honoring those who do what is right. And as a government does that, maintains order and secures justice, as a government maintains that, then I should submit to it. But what about if a government no longer maintains order? What about if the government is no longer punishing evildoers and honoring those who do right but starts to punish those who do right and honor evildoers so that there's no justice and there's a collapse of order. Do I still owe unthinking submission to that government? You remember World War II? Uh, do, you not, do you not know there were German theologians who were using Romans 13 in this passage in 1 Timothy? To justify obedience to Hitler and the Nazi regime. They were a duly elected government. Governments are ordained by God. Who are we to fail to submit to them? Have you ever heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Here's a German theologian who wrestled with these passages. And what to do in light of what the Germans were carrying out uh, against the Jewish people and their larger plans. And Bonhoeffer, who was a first-class theologian finally made the determination uh, that it was more important to overthrow or attempt to overthrow this government uh, for the larger good. It was no longer doing what government was established to do. And in those situations, uh, I think we are faced with the reality that we can reject what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded, God has appointed government. Yes, but in circumstances where it's no longer doing what God has ordained it to do, then I think we are free to reject that authority in order to obey God. What if your government commands you to do things that are contrary to your uh, your theology, to your faith, to your understanding of what God demands of us in the world? Who do you obey? God or human governments, and we may never, in my lifetime, be in a situation like that. Um, I know we get frustrated with our governments and with our leaders, um, and these are factors we have to we have to think deeply about. Uh, I'm not at the point right now of failing to submit to my government uh, as an American citizen, but I I, I keep thinking. We're on a continuum. And I can see circumstances coming together whereby we might be faced with that reality, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in my children's lifetime, maybe in my grandchildren's lifetime. But in those situations, I would tell them, you're to submit to the government. As the government carries out its God-ordained purpose, as it fails to do that, I am no longer obligated to submit to it. And might even act in order to undermine it, uh, if it is uh, contrary to God's purposes in the world. So how about slaves? That's citizens. How about slaves? How should slaves conduct themselves? If you're a Christian who is a slave, slaves in reverent fear of God. There's that reverent fear of God again. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable for, for, God, for God. To this you recall, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So now he speaks to Christians who might find themselves enslaved. Now, I know I've done this here multiple times, but not everybody's heard me here. And if you might have heard me do this, you might have forgotten. But it's important to know anytime you see slavery in the New Testament, and often it's Paul in both Colossians and in Ephesians. Peter does it here in 1 Peter when he says, slaves obey your masters. You need to know. The slavery they're talking about is not the kind of slavery you might have seen in pre-Civil War America. The slavery they're talking about and the slave system as they experienced it was not about race. It was about debt. Overwhelmingly. You would find yourself enslaved if you owed debts more than you could pay. It was more indentured servanthood. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, put lipstick on pig and say uh, it was a great thing to be a slave uh, in the first century. But it was far different and a different system. You could save money as a slave. You could purchase your freedom as a slave. Your, per- your freedom could be given to you by your master. When your debt was paid, you'd be set free if you worked until the debt was paid. Uh, it was a different type of system. And if it were the type, type, type of slavery we saw in pre-Civil War America, I have a sense that you might have seen a different attitude towards it from the New Testament writers. Nevertheless, if you find yourself enslaved, even if your slave slave master is harsh to you, he calls for obedience and, and for submission. And once again, it's for the same purposes. So that those who slander you might, their slander might be put to to be false. And you might win over the person who's abusing you. As you behave in this way towards those who might abuse you, who might mistreat you, whose example are you following? Whose footsteps are you walking in? Christ, who did no wrong and yet was abused, who did no wrong and yet was beaten, who did no wrong and yet was executed. As you are abused for doing what is good, doing what is right, so you walk in his footsteps. You follow in his example. And then the last image is wives. Well, actually he says, he's got one verse to husbands, but wives in chapter 3 verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. By the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of, a, of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner beauty, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great value in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, to put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, he's talked about citizens. He's talked about slaves. Now he talks about wives. And it's a familiar note, isn't it? Wives submit to your husbands. I would say, first of all, the kind of submission that the New Testament has in view is not degrading, It is not belittling, unlike what we think of as submission. If I talk about somebody submitting, it usually carries those connotations of it's somehow degrading, it's making yourself small or less, uh, it's taking your dignity away. That is not what New Testament submission is about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul gives the image of Christ submitting to the Father that he may be all in all. Christ submitting, using the same word he uses here, Christ submitting to his Father. Now there's the image of Christ submitting. Would it be degrading? Would it be belittling? Uh, Would it be taking away dignity? If it's what Christ does with respect to his Father... No way. We've got to lose this image of submission that it's degrading, that it takes away your dignity, that it it shows you're of no value. And where do we get the crazy idea that that's what submission is about? It's like lots of other words in in our conversation. They get corrupted to mean something that they don't mean when we run into them in Scripture. I, I remember when I was a kid... You know, there'd be, I don't know if they're bullies, oftentimes they were friends of mine, but they didn't act like friends all the time. And, and they would do things to you that would be painful, and the way they would stop doing it would be if you said submit, like twist your arm behind your back. Anybody ever done anything like that to you? And, and that's where, that's the earliest thing I remember, like a neighborhood kid, grab your arm, twist it behind your back and say, say say submit. Say submit. And, you know, you, you just endure it as long as you can, and then you finally say, I submit. Now, what kind of image does that portray? Is that how a wife's supposed to submit to her husband? And, and then, then as I got older, it got more where I remember at some point, like, I don't know, middle school, they'd squeeze me right there. Not just me, but we, heck, I probably did it to other people. And then say, say, submit, say, submit. And, I mean, you're in pain. Is it just me? They the experience, these things. I guess what I'm saying is I was really bullied when I was in school. <laughs> no, nah, I wasn't. It was, I, I, it was. just we did this to one another. But these are the ways we, we talked about submission. It was degrading. It was saying I'm 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 weak. I'm weak. Stop. I can't make you stop. So I just so I'll I'll, I'll say submit and you'll you'll leave me alone. That is divide, degrading. That is belittling. That's not what submission means when when Paul or Peter says, wives, submit to your husbands. It does involve yielding. It does involve the willingness to surrender control. But it is not defiling and it is not degrading. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now what that will look like in any given time and space has to be negotiated in that culture. And it should be a discussion that happens in the community of faith. What does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, it depends on where you live and and what time you live. Uh, I remember uh, my grandmother, uh, who lived in a different time. I remember her talking about, like, let's say, if a woman got a job working outside the home. In my grandmother's mind, this was disrespecting her husband. Now, what was her logic in that? Well, that was the wife saying her husband can't take care of the family, so I'm having to help him. And that was disrespectful to the husband. Now, that sounds so foreign uh, to uh, what people might think about those kinds. I mean, if a wife has a job today, I don't think anybody thinks that's disrespectful to the husband. I mean, if it's an upstanding job. (laughs) You You know what I'm saying. Um, just let me clarify that there might be jobs that would be disrespectful but an upstanding job for a woman working outside the home I recall I'm just using my grandmother as an example here of a different time I remember my grandmother suggesting that if a woman went out to eat like dinner without her husband that somehow that, that was disrespectful to her husband I don't think that would be true uh, in Shawnee this afternoon. Different cultures have to negotiate what wifely submission looks like, and it should be something that is that is part of how the community of faith thinks about such matters. But that has to be negotiated. But whether or not it, it is true, I don't know how you cast this aside. It, it does call for submission, and why? So that the husband might be won over. So, if he's an unbeliever. So here are two reasons for this discussion about submission to the government. Slaves submitting to their masters. Wives submitting to their husbands. It is one, to put a lie to the slander against you. That says you're trying to undermine our systems of government. You as Christians are trying to undermine our family structures. No. Put a lie to the slander. By living a life that is upstanding. And the second reason is that you might lend other people to Jesus. Whether it be the master, uh, whether it be your husband. Now after all that, look at that. It's it's six verses of wife's responsibilities towards the husband. One verse for the husband's. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now that sounds rather countercultural, cultural doesn't it? How do you like that? Be considerate as you live with your wives, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now that's not... That wouldn't be politically correct language, would it? To, to respect your wife as the weaker worker. I do not think that Peter means weaker morally, weaker spiritually, weaker intellectually. I think Peter has one sense in which he, he calls the wife the weaker vessel. I think he just means in physical strength. Now, I know you can present me some woman that's stronger than me. I, I grant you. I'm not stronger than every. I'm not more powerful than every woman in America. That, that, that he's just thinking here in a in a normal family setting. The husband could overpower his wife if he chose to do so. He could <coughs> abuse her in this culture. He could abuse her, and he's not going to be taken to court for that. The husband would have had rights to do that. But a Christian husband should respect his wife and not try to bully her or overpower her physically. Uh, That would be the kind of uh, lifestyle that would be contrary to um, the gospel. So live with with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And if you fail to treat your wife with respect and as a fellow heir, Uh, of the gift of life there are serious consequences for that spiritual consequences it will hinder your prayers but just one verse for the husband now you go look at Ephesians chapter 5 and there's instruction that the wives should submit to their husbands but there's even more instruction to husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church you know there Paul has a much lengthier section about the husband's responsibility than it is the wife. You notice here, Peter doesn't say anything to slave masters. But Paul does. So why is he, why is Peter focusing on slaves and wives? Because they're the most at risk. They're the most alienated. They're the the ones who would be treated with with the, the most hostility. Just like the Christians in this culture. They're the people most alienated, most at risk, and so he has the most to say to them. And in an odd way, it's actually an elevation of their status that he even addresses them. There are all kinds of these, these are called household codes. uh, Ways of living in the the household. And these are, the, the Christian view of that, there are lots of these household codes outside of the New Testament. Greek philosophers talked about them. Uh, You can even find them in some Jewish writings. And they rarely address the wife, the slave, the child. They're almost always addressed to the husband, to the slave master, the people in power. The fact that the New Testament addresses the slave, the wife, the child. Now, Peter doesn't do it here. But Paul does. Oh, children, obey your parents. Actually elevates their status, that they're responsible beings. And he treats them as such. Now, if you look on here, we're making great progress. The conduct of God's chosen people. Let your good conduct do the talking. The life of submission. And now the proper response to suffering begins at 3.8 and 4.11. And finally, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. These are the kinds of virtues that build a sense of community. And as they are being abused and mistreated and and alienated, the Christian community needs to be a place where there is love and compassion, uh, where there is unity, where there is a community of togetherness. And and these are the virtues that would promote that. Now that's our responsibility within the Christian community as we might face persecution, suffering. Verse 9 is our responsibility to those who persecute us. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you recall, so that you might inherit a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm Psalm 34 where God delivered uh, David from the Philistines. And I don't think he just randomly chose that song. These are people who are being mistreated and persecuted by their own enemies. So he quotes a psalm where David was being treated so by the Philistines and, and was able to overcome and so will they. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats or their taunts. Repeatedly in this letter, he says, fear God. He never says, fear those who persecute you. Fear those who might mistreat you. Never. Fear God. Not those who threaten you. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And there it is again. There are immigrants and refugees. They are going to be slandered. They're going to say terrible things about them. Live in such a way that it makes their, their, lie, their slander a lie. Now, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. So you remember earlier when he's talking about slaves. And if you have a slave master who treats you harshly. And as you endure maybe a beating. Even if you're doing what is right or doing what is good. You follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so now he's back now not, not only talking about slaves. But to any believer who, who might suffer for what, for what is right. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring it to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Now I think that's a reference to the resurrection. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. I think that's a reference to resurrection. After which, he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are in prison. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And at this point your head should be slain. Wait a minute. What? Where is he going? What happened? This seemed to be moving along about persecution and you If you suffer for doing what is right you follow in his footstep. And suddenly he says he went and made proclamation to the spirits who were in prison. And then he starts talking about in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water now saves you? What? Does Peter believe in baptismal regeneration? That's the fancy word for baptism is necessary for salvation. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who's gone into heaven is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And thankfully, I only have a couple of minutes to give to it. I actually planned the whole day so that I would come to this passage and only have a couple of minutes. Martin Luther says about this uh, it's the most difficult passage for him to understand the New Testament, and he still does not know what Peter did. He, he makes that statement. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind how it fits into everything we've seen so far. <clears throat> Peter's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering for what for doing what is right. He's talking about these Christians suffering for their faith. Why does he suddenly then jump to Jesus? Because if we suffer for doing what is right, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, what happened to Jesus in his suffering? What happened to him? How far did his suffering go? He died. Is it possible that some of them will die for their faith? Look in chapter 4, verse 12, just just so you'll know, that's not out of the question here. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that that, that might come upon you to test you. Fire your deal sounds like um, something you'd like to avoid, if at all possible. So he's trying to encourage believers who are in a situation where they're being treated with hostility, alienation, persecution, and that persecution might even result, ultimately, in them losing their lives. If that happens, you can take comfort because you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. For Christ also suffered, verse 18 for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body. But then what happened? Was that the end? He was put to death and buried. What are we going to celebrate one week from today? The, the same thing we celebrate every Lord's Day. The resurrection, that Jesus is alive. So in his situation of suffering for what, doing what is right, how did that end up? He was raised from the dead. What was his resurrection? A vindication. A vindication. That that he was the Messiah, that he'd done no wrong, that death was defeated, life was bigger than death. And where does the story end up? Where does it end up in verse 22? He has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. How does that encourage the Christian community? What if you die for your faith, for doing what is right? What if you die? God will raise you up, won't he? You will find yourself vindicated just as Jesus was. And you'll be raised from the dead because he was. And you'll be vindicated as he was. Now, anything else in there is somehow contributing to that. That's the point of this. So why does he jump to this Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison? I think that this is after the resurrection. Jesus goes... And I don't know where the prison is, but it's the place where all these opponents of God from the beginning are being kept. And Jesus preaches to them. So what does he preach? I mean, is this like a Billy Graham crusade for the dead? Just as I am him playing at the end, people post-mortem having an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. if you can show me anywhere else in the New Testament where that seems to be, or in the Old either, that after death you have another opportunity, then I might be willing to entertain that thought. But that would be contrary to everything else that I can read in the New Testament. So it's not an evangelistic message he's preaching. And what is he preaching? I think it's a message of vindication. I think it's a message of victory. He goes to the spirits in prison after his resurrection and declares his victory. And then he's taken into the heavens and, and played the sitting at the right hand of God with all of these uh, put in submission to him. It's a picture of victory and vindication. That's precisely the image Peter wants to convey to these Christians who are suffering for doing what is right. A picture of vindic- victory and vindication. Now, what about Noah? How does Noah factor into all this? Well, that's a complicated issue that I just don't have time to address, so I wouldn't write along. I'll, I'll say one small thing about it. You remember that story in Genesis chapter four? About the sons of God coming down and having sexual relations with the daughters of men, and their offspring are like giants in the land. You, you, you know this story. This becomes, in Jewish literature, a, a picture of like almost the archetype of disobedience to God. And, and I think he uses that image because it would resonate with his audience. For, for the people who are being, the spirits who are being held, the spirits in prison, are somehow tied to these sons of God coming down to the daughters of men and almost becoming the model of those people who are disobedient to God. And Jesus was victorious over all. And and I I think that's how you get to, that's why he brings up um, the Noah story here. Um, And beyond that, I'm just going to move on. I don't think it's baptismal regeneration. I don't think Peter's arguing for that. I don't think. Last thing, I'll say that. If you think that he's arguing that water saves you, like in the Noah story, Did the water save the people in Genesis? In the story of Genesis, which follows immediately upon those sons of God coming down to the daughters of men, by the way. That's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And then this is Genesis 6, the latter part. Then you have the Noah story. Did the water save them? No, the water was the instrument of destruction. What saved them? The ark is what saved them. And so when when he really gets down to it, it's not. Baptism that saves you, he says, it's a pledge, baptism is a pledge of good conscience to God. And then he qualifies it even more, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now he's back to sounding like something that sounds a bit more orthodox. Now, when we get to chapter 4 on our outline, uh, we are, we've got the proper response to suffering. Model Christ in your conduct. Model Christ in your suffering. And then i suffering for doing good. Vindication for suffering unjustly like Christ. Model Christ in your suffering. 4, 1 through 6. I'm actually going to skip over this. It's it's more of what I've already been talking about. And I'm going to go to 4, 7 through 11. Where he talks about living the present in light of the end. He says in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is needed. Therefore, be alert and be sober minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, Now, James has the same uh, statement. Uh, It's also uh, drawn from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it's James chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, Love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without crumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its many forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. More words about how... To live the immigrant existence as a believer in a world that is not our home, he refer he appeals to many of the same themes we've seen uh, up to this point. Uh, being sober-minded and alert sounds like girding up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded. The call to love each other deeply goes back to love one another out of a pure heart, um, uh, radically love one another out of a pure heart, um, and. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the words of God. This seems like the kinds of themes that he's already touched upon. Now, when we get to 4, um, 12, we are at the final section of the Bible. Final words of comfort for God's chosen people. Now, I do want to, to say something about verses 12 through 19. Here, he hones in, I think, most specifically on the nature of their suffering. Uh, in verses, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And this marks the last section of the Bible. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quotes Proverbs 11, 31. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will we become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. So, what's the nature of the suffering? Well, he says about it, uh, it is a fiery ordeal. That's the first thing he says about the nature of the suffering. He calls it a fiery ordeal. Now, for us, that just sounds metaphorical. But if he's facing the possibility of actually being burned to death, rolled in pitch and used to light a a public garden or a party for Nero, then the fire you has a lot more um, of an ominous tone. If you go, you can almost smell the fire. And... He doesn't want them to be surprised if, if something like this happens to them. What would an immigrant or a refugee living in a world not their home, who's being alienated and slandered, should it surprise you that you might go through a fire ordeal? So the nature of their suffering, he calls it a fire ordeal. In verse fourteen, he says, "If you are insulted because of the name of the, of the name of Christ." So the nature of their suffering uh, is slander and uh, insult. Verse 16, he says, If you suffer as a Christian, uh, so they're suffering suffering as as a follower of Christ. He says in verse 17, It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. That God uses suffering as a way to purify Um, Judgment beginning with God's household is sort of an ominous image. And he says... And if God judges his own people, how ominous is that for those who are not his people, the ungodly, the sinner.
1: And then finally, the nature of this is, it is according to God's will. And this is
0: what I tried to say earlier. He does not want you to think about suffering as something that is outside of God's purposes. Suffering according to God's will, that God often brings his purposes about Through suffering. That's the nature of the suffering. Now, this section also talks about our response to the suffering. We should not be surprised. We shouldn't be caught off guard. This has been the typical experience of God's people for 2,000 years. that, That God's people suffer. That we feel like this world is not our home. That we realize our citizenship is in heaven. But what's been the American experience? Not suffering, we benefited from it. Now, I keep saying that, but do you know what I'm saying when I say we have benefited for the better part of over 200 years? For the better part of 300 years, Christians have benefited from their Christianity in the United States. Um, How many business deals have been uh, made between fellow believers at church on Sunday? How many politicians have been elected because they identified overtly with Christianity? We, we've had debates in the United States. Can you win a, a presidential election? Can you win local elections without identifying with Christianity? I mean, the, the James Langford story is a remarkable, amazing story. Here's a person who was head of the youth ministry at the Baptist Church of
2: Metro Oklahoma, and basically ran Paul Street.
0: And I remember the day I was at OEU when we started getting the message that James was resigning to run for the House of Representatives, to represent Oklahoma and House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Are you crazy? He can't win an election. He's not a politician. He won. And, and then there was an opening for a Senate seat, and he ran for that, and he won that with almost no background as a politician. Could he have done that without his identification with Baptists in Oklahoma? No way! I don't fault him with that at all. I'm just saying that it's part of the benefit that we received in the United States. Could Peter have envisioned someone running for political office in Rome in the first century and winning by running on a Christian platform? No, they'd be arrested and thrown into jail. There's been social benefits, there's been political benefits, but those benefits are dwindling, and and I think we're losing that benefit more and more, and so we shouldn't be astonished or surprised if we find ourselves, as Christians living in America, having the same experience that almost all Christians have had for 2000 years and that is knowing what it is to pay a price for identifying with Christ. Verse 13, so he says in verse 12, don't be surprised, don't be caught off guard, don't panic. The second thing is rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you suffer, you follow in the footsteps of Christ who suffered. And he's already talked about how we can find joy in suffering. Verse 16, do not be ashamed. If you suffer, if you are alienated, do not be ashamed. And then in verse 19, <clears throat> commit yourselves to your faithful creator and continue to do good. Commit yourselves to your faithful creator. That's interesting. That that's sort of comes out of nowhere. He's not talked about God as creator anywhere in 1 Peter. And now he uses the image of God as a faithful creator. When, when things start to go haywire, when you find yourself suffering, when the world seems to have turned against you, maybe it's important to remember that God is the creator of all things and he has not lost control of his world. Even if it feels like maybe that's what's happened in your own circumstance. So in your situation of persecution, in your situation of suffering, entrust yourself to be confident in your faithful creator and continue to, to do good. Now, in chapter 5, look on the outline. Some final exhortations to stand firm in the true grace of God. He says in 5.1, to the elders among you. Now, I think this is a reference to pastoral leaders. To the elders among you. I don't think he's talking about the grandpas among you. Like me. It's not, a, it's not an age issue here. Elder here, I think, refers to pastoral leadership in the churches. I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over, not using your authority. As a pastoral figure, in a way that it's like pulling your weight around over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, that's a beautiful image. Like back there in chapter one, we talked about as his appearing glory and honor and praise. Here is this image of receiving the unfading crown of glory. But here it specifically is being uh, entrusted to those who are the pastoral leaders among you. Think about the role your pastors, the pastoral leaders, would play if you are being persecuted. If there is a persecution going on of the people of God, who are the first to be arrested? The leaders. Who are the first to be beaten? Who would be the first to sort of pay the price for that? It might be your pastoral leaders. But even in the face of that, shepherd the flock of God. And in times like this, it would be no time more important than to have strong pastoral leadership. And when he talks about elders, I don't think they thought in terms of a senior pastor. These people would have been living in house churches. And you would have to have multiple pastoral leadership from house to house and 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 he's he's pointing out the importance of those who shepherd the flock in times like these and it's true in all times what is the value of a good shepherd what is the value of a pastoral leader who's committed to the church and committed to the gospel what's the value of someone like that how much should you value your pastoral leadership? And I know pastoral leadership can, can go awry, and, and you can have pastoral leaders who are ministering for uh, bad motives, and they're doing it, uh, as he says here, for dishonest gain. They're, they're throwing their weight around because of some gratification they get out of it. But how about good shepherds? Like the ones you have here that I know, What's the value of those people? How much should you hold them in high regard and respect? In the same way, you who are younger. Now, I don't think, again, he's talking about age. Now, I think he's just referring to those who are the members of the congregation who aren't the pastoral leaders. In the same way, submit yourselves to your leaders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Another proverb. It seems like Peter knows the proverb as well. He keeps quoting in Proverbs 334. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your care upon him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Again, with alert and sober minded. Your enemy, the devil, Crowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And what does he want to devour? Your faith. That's what he wants to devour. <coughs> Resist him, standing firm in faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffer for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And then, final readings. You thought we'd never get here by 7 o'clock tonight, and here we are. He says, through Silas, or Sylvanus. Now, your translation might say Sylvanus, but that's Silas, like in the book of Acts. It's just a shortened form of the name. And through Silas, I have a friend, Randy Richards, who, who's, who did a great deal of research on this, and he's Southern Baptist, and he's, he's really recognized, in all scholarly circles for his work in this area, that that's not a reference to Silas or Sylvanus as the secretary who copied the letter, although it wouldn't exclude him as that, that this is a reference to him as the carrier of the letter, that this letter is being sent through Silas or Sylvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I've read you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends, her, sends you her greetings. And so is my son Mark. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. She who is in Babylon. Now, Babylon doesn't exist when he's writing this letter. But what was Babylon? For any Jewish person, it was the place of their exile. What did he call them in the first verse? Exiles. Now he comes around to say, she who is a Babylon, that was the place of exile. But Babylon doesn't exist at the moment, so what's the place of their current exile? Rome. Jewish people could live in their land in this period, but it was controlled by Rome. And Jewish Christians might be persecuted. So it's still a place of exile. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A kiss dedicated for this purpose, of fellowship. I would say a hearty handshake will do just fine. <laughs> Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And um, that is First Peter in the day. And you all listen so quickly, carefully, I couldn't be more appreciative of it. So, thank you.
2: All right, just a reminder, as you head out, if you would like to give toward the love offering there. some silver bowl in the back. Um, You have a chance to do that. We'll hold Dr. Kelly's check for a couple of weeks. Uh, Not because he did a bad job, but just because if you don't have money to give tonight and you would like to give toward that, you'll have a couple of Sundays uh, to to be able to do that. I know you want to come up and thank him for that. Wednesday night, no meal, no children's activities, but we will be here at 6.30, from 6.30 to 7 for a prayer time very focused prayer time for Holy Week. Praying for salvation, praying for rededications, praying for an opening of our hearts. 30 minutes, 6.30 to 7, no bill, no child care, but equally so not taking lightly what it means to gather during Holy Week to pray together. So very focused prayer time, 30 minutes, Wednesday night. Thursday, building goes open, polling hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, for our service in the main building, Friday night. Good Friday service at Capitol Hill at 6.30, Sunday, we have the two services, Sunday morning, 9 and 10.45. We, we got some more preschool uh, help this morning. We still need about five people who can help with extended care on Sunday morning with our preschoolers. So if you could attend one service and help the other, we still can use about five or six people um, to do that. Other than that, I think we're, we're set. excited about God's work uh, during this week. Be aware of those conversations that the Lord gives you this week with people um, as we, we prepare for Easter. Let's pray for Dr. Kelly, for his family, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. you will have a chance to come up and give him a hearty handshake, and we'll go from there. Father, thank you for the gift of today. Uh, gathering with churches around the world on Palm Sunday, thinking about... The joy of studying something like 1 Peter on this day. Your grace and mercy at work in our lives. Father, I pray this week that our hearts and minds would be set on you in a fresh way. We celebrate the resurrection every week as we gather together, every day as we wake up with that same grace that comes from you. Uh, But once a year, being able to think about this in a very unique way and, and still living in a culture where people... Uh, recognize the Easter holiday, even though there's so much confusion about it. And so, God, let us be ready to have those conversations and, and invite people to come and see and come and participate, come and learn, God, that their hearts will be open. God, thank you for Dr. Kelly for his investment in our lives and his investment in Emmaus over many years. God, we pray for uh, Angie and Luke and Levi. God, we pray for their family that you continue to guide them uh, in the days to come. Father, we give you praise for this day together. In Jesus' name.